Sup. All right, let's open our Bibles to Genesis 39. That's like how every sermon should start. I don't know about that, but that's how this sermon's starting. So Genesis 39. You guys having a good time? Nice. Nice. That was pretty, like, unexcited. You guys having a good time? Yeah! I just committed, like, one of my biggest pet peeves, and that's like, I didn't hear you! It's like, come on, guy. Like, really? So I'm sorry to myself for committing that pet peeve. Uh, But here's where we're at. Last night in Genesis 37, we left Joseph in the hands of slave traders. He's sold to these Ishmaelites, these Midianite slave traders, and in the last verse of chapter 37, we're told that he's sold to a man named Potiphar. Well, we're picking up the story where we left off last night. We're coming to chapter 39, where it picks up the story of Joseph and what happens in Potiphar's house. And once again, we are going to see that God's grace is displayed in our brokenness. So here's what happens with Joseph. Look at 39 verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, now Joseph had been taken to Egypt. An Egyptian named Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guards, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, serving in the household of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, that the Lord made everything he did successful, Joseph found favor with his master and became his personal attendant. Potiphar also put him in charge of his household and placed all that he owned under his authority. From the time that he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house because of Joseph. The Lord's blessing was on all that he owned in his house and in his fields. He left all that he owned under Joseph's authority. He did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was a well-built and handsome. All right, so what happens? Well, Joseph shows up to Potiphar's house, and we don't know how long he has been in this house, but you get the idea that probably several years, and over the course of this time, it goes well, right? We see that, that the Lord was with Joseph, and remember that phrase. That's a phrase that is going to show up a theme in the life of Joseph, that throughout his story, the Lord was with him, and so he has, is faithful over everything he is put in charge of, and Potiphar takes notice, Potiphar is this rich, high-ranking official in Egypt, right? We see in verse 1 that says he's an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of guards, that he had this massive household. He had servants. He had a palace. He is a man of influence in Egypt, and Joseph is sold to him. And everything Potiphar hands him, Joseph is faithful with, and it's successful, Here's a little uh, pattern that we begin to see in the life of Joseph, an application for us right away. Faithfulness, regardless of circumstances, brings blessing. We can't control our circumstances when we live in a broken and fallen world, but what we can control is what we do with those circumstances, our attitude, how we respond. You see, Joseph's story is a story of brokenness, but that isn't just the sin that he and others committed. Brokenness is also the result of living in a fallen and broken world, a world that has been cursed by sin. And here, the brokenness that we see in Joseph's life is him responding to the trials and sufferings and faithfulness. 
that his brokenness that he's experiencing is this position of trial, and yet he remains faithful. And so what happens? The Lord is with him, and he blesses him. This is a pattern that you see when you are faithful, regardless of your circumstances, it brings blessing. Joseph is faithful so much so that the only thing that Potiphar has to worry about is what he's going to eat that day, right? He says, I didn't concern myself with anything except what I ate and drank. But now there's a little twist at the end of verse six that sets up the rest of the story. Notice what it said. It said, Joseph was well-built and handsome. Well-built and handsome. You see, Potiphar wasn't the only one who takes notice of Joseph. Look at verse 7. After some time, his master's wife looked longingly at Joseph and said, sleep with me. Potiphar's not the only one who notices Joseph, also Potiphar's wife. She sees this young 20-something who's faithful, successful, is administrative, and she is attracted to him. She looks longingly at him and says, hey, sleep with me. Well, what does Joseph do in response? Verse 8, but he refused. Look, he said to his master's wife, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in this house. He's put all that he owns under my authority. No one in this house is greater than I am. He has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. So how could I do this immense evil, and how could I sin against God? Although she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her. Joseph is a man of integrity. Right? He refuses this woman's request to sleep with him. He is a man of integrity. He knows if he were to sleep with Potiphar's wife, it would be a sin against Potiphar. It would be an immense evil. But check out what he says. He, he has a perspective that we don't always have. Look back at verse 9. He says, how could I do this immense evil and how could I sin against God? Joseph knew that having sex with Potiphar's wife was not just an issue of sinning against Potiphar, but it was an issue of sinning against God. You see, our sin is not just horizontal, but also vertical. Our sin is not just an offense against others, it's an offense against God. You see, in our culture, what does it take for you to have sex with someone? Well, it requires two consenting adults. As long as the two of you consent to it and nobody gets hurt, it's okay. That's kind of the standard of if you're going to have sex with someone in our culture. Two consenting adults, no one gets hurt, great, go for it. But here we see Joseph knows that the issue of sexuality is not just two consenting adults, but following God's design. You see, God gave us the incredible gift of sex. It was God's idea. Like, he literally created sex. It is an incredible gift. And God gave us a design for this gift to be experienced. And the design that we see in Genesis 1 and 2 is that, that sex is intended to be experienced and enjoyed in the context of marriage between a man and a woman. This is God's design for sex. And Joseph knows to go outside of that design is not just an offense against Potiphar, but it's an offense against the God who created sex in the first place. You see, sex is like a fire. 
We love campfires at our house. Like we are a campfire family. This week we have had four fires, Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night, and Tuesday night. And every time we build a campfire, I like get the kids and have them come over. You've seen our kids. Um, I have them help like build it. I'm teaching them how to build it. Tuesday night, this is like the most proud dad moment ever. Isla, the gorgeous girl in the red coat that you've been seeing running around, we're building our fire Tuesday night. And she goes, so dad, what kind of fire are we building tonight? A log cabin? I was like, oh my goodness, you are such a beast. I was like, no, honey, we have a lot of people coming. People aren't going to be able to move away from the smoke, so I think we're going to go teepee. And she's like, oh, that makes sense, Dad. And I'm like, you're awesome. Like, she is going to crush it. Like, there's going to be few guys in the world who can impress her because, you know, her dad's got a truck. She knows how to build fires. Like, I tell her she's beautiful every day. It's like, if some guy shows up in a truck, can build fires, and tells her she's beautiful, she's going to be like, so what? I've heard that my whole life. Like, let's move on. You know, so we build this fire and fires are incredible, right? Fires are an amazing gift. They're life-giving. They're warm. It brings you joy. Like you just love sitting there. Like you could just stare at a fire forever. Fires are an incredible gift and yet incredibly destructive outside of the right context. A fire can destroy lives. A fire can destroy homes if it's outside the fireplace, if it's outside the fire pit. In the right context, a gift. Outside of that context, destruction. Sex is like fire. An incredible, life-giving gift from God in the right context. Outside of that context, destructive. And Joseph knows this. So he's a man of integrity. He refuses to sleep with Potiphar's wife, not just because it would be a sin against Potiphar, because ultimately it would be a sin against God, rebelling against his design for sexuality. So what happens? Well, verse 11. Now one day he went into the house to do his work, and none of the household servants were there. She grabbed him by his garment and said, sleep with me. But leaving his garment in her hand, he escaped and ran outside. When she saw that he had left his garment with her and had run outside, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, my husband brought a Hebrew man to make a fool of us. He came to me so that he could sleep with me. And I screamed as loud as I could. When he heard me screaming for help, he left his garment beside me and ran outside. So she put Joseph's garment beside her until his master came home. Then she told him the same story. The Hebrew slave you brought to us came to make a fool of me. But when I screamed for help, he left his garment beside me and ran outside. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, these are the things your slave did to me. He was furious and he had him thrown into prison where the king's prisoners were confined. So Joseph was there in prison. Joseph was a man of integrity, but that integrity carried a cost. Joseph's integrity cost him, and it cost him being falsely accused and thrown into prison. Potiphar's wife is like, okay, if I can't sleep with you, I'm going to get you thrown into prison. Joseph's integrity, his obedience to God cost him. See, here's a reality. There is no cost to becoming the child of God. There's no cost for you to have a saving relationship with Jesus. And yet, there is a cost to following Jesus. 
There's a cost to walking in obedience to him. It's famously been said that it costs you nothing to follow Jesus except everything. When you realize that Jesus is the king who laid down his life so that you could have life in him, the response is to surrender your whole life under his lordship. To say, you are my king. You own me. You command me. You dictate my whole life. And I'm not doing this to earn your favor, to earn your grace, to earn your love. I'm doing it in response to your grace, love, and favor. You see, there is a cost to following Jesus. There is a cost to walking in integrity. Sexual integrity for Joseph meant being falsely accused and thrown into prison. I don't know what it will cost you to have sexual integrity, but I know it will cost you something. You see, every single one of us will have to face a cost to following Jesus in obedience to how he determines our sexuality to be expressed. For some of you, the cost of sexual integrity might be you lose your boyfriend. Your boyfriend gets upset that you are no longer willing to sleep with him, and so he breaks up with you. Or he continues to persist, and you come to the conviction that you need to break up with him in order to obey Jesus with your sexuality. For some of you, sexual integrity will cost social media. Now, this is not a hate on social media sermon. I think that there are a lot of positives to social media. But for some of you in this room, every time you get onto Instagram, you can't avoid the Discover page. And all of a sudden, time after time, sooner than later, again and again, you find yourself looking at porn every time you get on Instagram. Hitting the Discover page, and then it leads to one thing after another. For some of you, sexual integrity is going to cost you your sexual orientation. You experience same-sex attraction, and the cost for you is to deny those desires. Now, I don't think that you chose same-sex attraction any more than I chose heterosexual temptation. And yet, whenever we find a desire within ourselves that is contrary to God's design, our response is to submit that to King Jesus. You see, the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. The opposite of all sexual sin is holiness. I don't know what it will cost you to follow Jesus, but I know it will cost you something. Because the reality is, in this room, there are two types of people. There are not pure people and broken people. There are sexually broken people and sexually broken people who have experienced Jesus' grace. Every single one of us carries sexual brokenness into this room. Sin's curse affected us at every level, including a sexual one. And so for every single one of us in this room, no matter your desires, no matter your orientation, there is a cost to following Jesus. And yet that cost is worth it. It will cost everyone something to follow Jesus, and yet that cost is worth it. A few years ago, I had a friend that we met regularly with, we met regularly, and we were meeting for coffee, and he confided, he had shared multiple times about his same-sex attraction to me. And we had talked numerous times about just these desires that he was feeling within himself. And on this particular meeting, we were having coffee, he shared with me, he said, Stephen, I just don't understand how God could ask me to give up something that feels so close to who I am, so a part of my identity. I'll never forget what he said. He said, it feels like God is asking me to cut off my arm. How could I do that? 
And with all of the love and gentleness and patience I could have in that moment, I said, man, I know that this feels like God is asking you to give up something that is so a part of who you are, to deny something that you feel so strongly for. But you can trust a God who would cut off his son for you. And if we have a God who is willing to cut off his son so that you could have grace, he is a God who loves you enough that you can trust him when he asks you to obey him. I don't know what it will cost you to follow Jesus, but I know that we have a God who proved his love 2,000 years ago when he cut off his son so that he, you can trust him when he asks you to walk in obedience to him. I know that it will be painful having that conversation with your boyfriend. You love him, and it just feels like you're cutting out a huge part of your life to break up with him. I know that you're saying, man, this sex for me and my girlfriend just makes us feel so close. It's so a part of who our like what our relationship is. How could we stop? For some of you, the cost is to take radical steps to begin cutting out porn in your life. How could you do that? How could you trust God to cut those things out? Well, you can trust a God who would love you enough that he would cut his son off on the cross. When Isla was one and a half years old, she's a toddler, she loved blueberries and still does. Like we regularly find her at the fridge just pounding blueberries. And it's like, girl, you got to stop. But she loves blueberries, and she's always loved blueberries. And I'll never forget, there was one night in particular, I, me and her were just sitting in the dining room. I have the package of blueberries, and I'm just feeding them to her. And she's a toddler in a high chair, and it was just like the best night ever. She is smiling, and we're both laughing. We're just having so much fun as I'm popping these blueberries in her mouth. I'm like, oh, you know, we're just giggling, laughing. It's this precious moment between a dad and a daughter. And there was one blueberry in the package that was bigger than all the other ones. And I specifically saved it for last. And so we finally got to this last blueberry and I grab it and I go, Isla, look at this blueberry. And her little toddler eyes just got so big. She gets this huge grin on her face. She starts giggling and starting like flailing her arms like in the high chair like the toddlers do. And it was the cutest thing ever. And I'm building it up. I'm like, Isla, look, this is the biggest blueberry, the juiciest blueberry. And it is all yours. And we're just having this really cool moment. And as I'm reaching it out to her, it's almost in her chubby little hand. I rotate it just enough to realize that the entire backside of the blueberry is covered in mold. And my heart sinks. I'm like, Isla, I am so sorry. You can't eat this. And her face starts to sink. Tears, like literal tears, start welling up in her eyes. And I'm like, sweetheart, if you eat this, it will make you sick. She starts crying because the thing that she wanted more than anything in the world, her father was telling her, you can't have. And it broke my heart to walk over to the trash can and she's watching me and I had to throw it away as she's crying. But I knew as her good father, her father who loved her, that I had a perspective that she didn't have. A perspective on the thing that she desired more than anything else. If I gave it to her, it would cause her harm. You see, there are desires that we have that in our guts, we're like, I desire this more than anything else. How could God love me and still tell me I can't have that? 
Well, would you trust that you have an eternal, infinite Father who has a perspective that you don't in your finite being? That there's actually things that we don't understand about our world and about our desires that God in his eternal perspective is saying that thing that you want more than anything else, it's covered in mold. You can't see it, but I have a perspective that you can trust. You see, if God is who he says he is, the eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing God, and if he is the God who proved his love for you 2,000 years ago on the cross, he is a God that you can trust even when you don't understand. He is a God that you can trust even when it feels like you're cutting off an arm. Because the only thing that he commands us is ultimately for our good and for our flourishing. This is the perspective Joseph had. This is the view of God he had. He knew, even though this is going to cost me, even though I'm going to prison, I can trust that God has a greater plan for me, that I can walk in integrity. You see, we said faithfulness, regardless of circumstances, brings blessing. But for Joseph, that didn't mean that it was without hardship. That didn't mean that it was without cost. And yet Joseph had a deep and profound trust in God to maintain integrity even when it cost him. So where are we at? Well, at this point in the story, we have a very inspiring story, right? If you want to follow Jesus, you probably hear this story and you're like, man, I want to be like Joseph. I want to be someone who walks in integrity regardless of the cost. But I think for all of us, we have a sinking feeling at this point in the story because we see this example of integrity and yet we know that we don't meet that example of integrity, Maybe you've tried to walk in purity. Maybe you've tried to deny your sexual desires and it just seems like you're continually falling back into the same sin and the same sin over and over again. You want to be a person of integrity and yet you don't know how to get there. Why is this so challenging? Well, for so many of us, the thing that that usually motivates our sexual purity is guilt, fear, and shame. We feel guilt, fear, and shame about our sexual brokenness and our sexual failures, and we use that as motivation. Man, okay, I failed last night. I just got to try better and try harder tonight. Man, me and my boyfriend, we messed up again last night. Me and my girlfriend, we messed up again. We went too far. We had sex. Ah, I got to be better. Or we begin to fear, man, how long is God going to put up with this? How long is he going to put up with me and my failure and my weakness and my inability to live up to this standard that we see in Joseph? We want to walk in sexual purity, and yet it seems impossible. So if we ended right now, here's what we'd have. We'd have an inspiring story that would leave you hopeless. An inspiring story that would just once again make you feel inadequate, shameful, and guilty. Because though you want to live like this, you and I both know we are broken. What is the path forward? How can we actually become the sort of people that follow God in integrity regardless the cost? Well, what I want to show you is that there's actually two stories in Genesis. That the Bible records two stories, two brothers back to back. You see, in chapter 39, we have a story of a brother who had sexual integrity. But just the chapter before in Genesis 38, we're going to see another story, a story of another brother, another son of Jacob, 
And it's a story of sexual failure. And what we're going to find is something completely unexpected. And if we can see it, we will actually begin to see the resources of how we can be sexually pure people. So I'm going to read all of Genesis 38. And like I said last night, the Bible does not hide the flawed parts of humanity. This is a raw story. It's a difficult story. But the Bible doesn't hide the brokenness of this family and of these people. So flip back one chapter to chapter 38. Here's the story of Judah. At that time, Judah left his brothers and settled near an Adulamite named Hira. There, Judah saw the daughter of a Canaanite named Shua. He took her as his wife and slept with her. She conceived and gave birth to a son, and he named him Ur. She conceived again, gave birth to a son, and named him Onan. She gave birth to another son and named him Shelah. It was at Chezeb that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Now Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the Lord's sight, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife. Perform your duty as her brother-in-law and produce offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he released his semen on the ground so that he would not produce offspring for his brother. What he did was evil in the Lord's sight. So he put him to death also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he might die too, like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had finished mourning, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite, went up to Timnah to his sheep shears. Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timma to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's clothes, veiled her face, covered herself, and sat at the entrance of a name, which is on the way to Timna. For she saw that though Sheila had grown up, she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He went over to her and said, Come, let me sleep with you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me for sleeping with me? I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he replied. But she said, only if you leave something with me until you send it. What should I give you, he asked. She answered, your signet ring, your cord, and the staff in your hand. So he gave them to her and slept with her. And she became pregnant by him. She got up and left, then removed her veil and put on her widow clothes back on. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite in order to get back his items he had left with the woman, he could not find her. He asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was beside the road at a name? There's been no cult prostitute here, they answered. So the Adulamite returned to Judah saying, I couldn't find her. And besides, the men of the place said there hasn't been a cult prostitute here. Judah replied, let her keep the items for herself. Otherwise, we might become a laughingstock. After all, I did send this young goat, but you couldn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, 
your daughter-in-law Tamar has been acting like a prostitute, and now she is pregnant. Bring her out, Judah said, and let her be burned to death. As she was being brought out, she said to her father, and she sent her father-in-law this message. I am pregnant by the man whose items these belong. And she added, examine them. Whose signet ring, whose cord and staff are these? Judah recognized them and said, she is more right than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila, and, did not know, and he did not know her intimately again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twins in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, and the midwife took it and tied a scarlet thread around it, announcing this one came out first. But then he pulled back his hand, out, out came his brother, and she said, what a breakout you have made for yourself. So his name was Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread tied to his hand, came out, and he was named Zerah. Two stories back to back in our Bible. Two brothers, one of sexual integrity, one of profound sexual brokenness. I mean, think about how broken this story is. Judah has these evil sons. God puts them to death. Judah makes a false promise to his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Hey, some point you can marry Shira. When she sees that that doesn't happen, Judah goes on a trip with one of his buddies. Goes on a trip out of town with Hira. Probably thinks nobody's going to find out if I make a quick stop in a name and sleep with a prostitute. No one will find that out, so he does. But he doesn't know that's his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Impregnates her and then goes about his business. And then it's found out Tamar's pregnant, has been acting like a prostitute. And in utter hypocrisy, says, burn her at the stake. How hypocritical is Judah? Complete hypocrisy. Oh, she's been a prostitute? Oh, I can sleep with prostitutes, but if you get caught as a prostitute, burn them at the stake. And Tamar exposes, it was you who impregnated me. These are your rings, your, ro- your staff, your rod, your cord. You're the one who impregnated me. A story of sexual wounds and sexual failure. Why are these stories back to back in our Bible? Why do we have these two stories, one of sexual brokenness and failure and one of sexual integrity regardless of cost? Why are these back to back? Well, remember last night what I said about this family of Jacob. I said this is the family that God chose to bring Jesus into the world through. And so, every generation, there's a natural question. Which son is Jesus going to be, come through? You have Abraham, then you have Isaac. Isaac has Jacob and Esau. Jacob is chosen. Now, which of these 12 sons is going to be the one who the line of Jesus comes through? And to utter shock, the completely unexpected happens. In chapter 49 of Genesis, Jacob, at the end of his life, is blessing his sons, and he says this to Judah, the scepter will never depart from you. Why does he say that to his son Judah? He's telling him, the king of the world will come through you. The scepter will never depart. And that's exactly what happens. In Matthew 1, in the second verse of the New Testament, here's what we read. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to just read it, though. 
It says, Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers, Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron, and then it goes down all the way to Jesus. Which brother selected to carry the line of Jesus? The brother of sexual brokenness. Which one is, is which mother is to carry the line of Jesus? The mother with sexual wounds. I don't know if Tamar is 100% innocent in this story, but at the very least, there's a power dynamic at play here. She is in a vulnerable position, a father-in-law who has broken his promises, and she has sinned against. And yet she's redeemed. Her story is forever written in our Bibles. You can't get two verses into the New Testament without hearing the name Tamar. Why would God choose this man to bring Jesus into the world? I mean, think about it. In our culture today, if you're running for political office and a sexual scandal like this comes out, your career is done. No one is picking you. No one is voting for you. Our culture might be skewed sexually, but it has a low tolerance for sexual scandal. Here is a major sexual scandal, and yet this is who Jesus comes from. Jesus, the Lion of Judah. How? How could that be the man? How could this be the story? Well, once again, Jesus displays his grace in our brokenness. Why did Jesus pick Judah and Tamar? It's so that you would forever know that sexually broken people have a place in the family of God. It's so that you would know that your sexual sin is not greater than Jesus' grace. It's so that you would know that the sexual wounds that you carry, the sins that have been committed against you, that those wounds, Jesus is offering healing and restoration and redemption. There is no sexual sin that you could commit that disqualifies you from the grace of Jesus. There is no sexual brokenness that you could have experienced that can't be healed by the power of Jesus. What does Jesus do with Tamar? He restores to a woman who'd been sexually taken advantage of. He restores to her dignity. He restores to her value and worth. Jesus sees the wounds that you carry. He knows what you experienced. And he can redeem your story. He can restore to you value, dignity, and worth through his grace. Regardless of what sin has been committed against you, Jesus can heal you. You are not too dirty for Jesus. You are not too broken for Jesus. Jesus sees you, knows you, and loves you, and is offering you healing. You've not sinned too much for Jesus. Here is Judah who receives forgiveness. His name is forever remembered as Jesus, the Lion of Judah. Jesus associates with broken people. Jesus displays his grace through our sexual brokenness. How? How could Jesus be this kind of savior? How could sexually broken people receive an invite into the family of Jesus? Well, think about the story of Joseph again. 
You see, what we begin to realize is that the story of Joseph is not a bar, but it's instead an arrow. The story of Joseph is not a bar that says you must be this tall to get into the family of God. But instead, the story of Joseph is an arrow that points to the true and greater Joseph. The one who also walked in complete integrity and obedience. The one who was also falsely accused. The one who experienced the chamber of death, the prison of death, so that he could raise victoriously and offer you grace and healing for all your brokenness. Joseph is an arrow that points to Jesus. Like Joseph, he was a man of integrity, perfectly obeying God. Like Joseph, he was falsely accused, and yet it cost him everything. Jesus traded his perfect record of obedience for our record of failure, brokenness, and sin. On the cross, Jesus went to the chamber of death so that you could have the hope of eternity, regardless your story, regardless your brokenness, regardless your sin. Your sexual sin doesn't disqualify you for the, from grace. Instead, Jesus' grace is displayed in your brokenness. As he takes your sin and forgives it. As he takes the sin committed against you and brings healing to it. As he gives you his spirit to empower you to begin to be transformed into the person he's called you to be. Here's what happens when you realize that. The guilt that you carry into this room, you begin to replace that guilt with grace. The fear that you walk into this room with begins to be replaced with freedom. The wounds that you walk into this room with begin to be replaced with healing. And when you know that you've received grace, freedom, and healing, you will actually begin to be, be able to be the sort of person Jesus has called you to be. Not to impress him, not to maintain favor, not to earn his grace, to earn his love, but because you've received his love, grace, forgiveness, freedom, and healing. And when, you are, when your heart is melted by the Savior of the world who associates with broken people, that you've received his grace, it will actually begin to transform your motivations. Not guilt, fear, and burden, but instead grace. I want to honor Jesus simply out of resp response to the grace I've received. You'll stop trying to pull yourself up by your bootstraps the next day after failure and instead know that God himself, the spirit who rose Christ Jesus from the dead, lives in me. And now by that spirit, I can put to death the deeds of the body, not in my own strength, but in his strength. Not motivated from guilt, but motivated by grace. The reason why you are in a vicious cycle of failure is because of guilt, shame, and fear. But what Jesus is offering you is a path forward to know his grace, to be overwhelmed by it, and to know his freedom and power through the Spirit. When you see Jesus, the Lion of Judah, dying for you so that he could become your eternal king, you will finally begin to have the freedom to walk in integrity whatever the cost. Not motivated by fear, but motivated by freedom. Not motivated by guilt, but motivated by grace. Now, how does this look as we leave this retreat? What does it look like when you leave this retreat and more than likely will fail again sexually? What does this look like? Well, so many of us wonder, I think, in that moment, like, what, how is God feeling towards me right now? Like, what is his, the disposition of his face towards me right now? And so often we imagine God being disappointed and frustrated and upset with us, thinking, man, how long is God going to put up with me? But here's how grace shifts that perspective. When you fail, it's not the look of disappointment, but instead the look of delight. 
Here's what I mean. Crew, our third son, you'll see him running around with shark boots that light up. They are the most baller boots ever. Well, he learned to walk in the last year. So he's two. He learned how to walk uh, about a year ago. And here's what happened. He took his very first step, and I went crazy. Crew! You're walking. You took a step. Like, I am just full of joy. He takes one step and then falls. And I'm like, buddy, you took a step. Let's do it again. And then he took two steps and fell. And you think I was standing over him. Crew, are you freaking kidding me? No son of mine isn't going to be able to walk. Get back on your feet. You are one and a half years old. You should know this by now. No. What was my response as a good and loving father? Son, you took a step. One day you're going to be able to walk. One day you're going to be able to run. But you took a step. Disappointment shifted to delight. This is the Christian life. It's like learning to walk like a toddler. I've been saved by grace, and now I want to honor my king who gave up his life for me. So I'm going to take one step and then fall. But when I look up at the face of God, I don't see a face of disappointment. I see a face of delight. Not that God is happy when we fail sexually, but it's a face of my child is learning to walk. And then with all the encouragement of a loving father, he says, get up. Let's take two steps this time. Let's take three steps. Oh, you took two? Okay, no big deal. Like, let's get up. Let me hold you by your hands. And as your good father, I am going to empower you to do that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be like, that is the face of Jesus. That is the face of God, your good father. Listen, we are broken sexually. We all walk into this room with failure. And even when we know this grace that we have in Christ, there are still going to be moments of failure in the future. But what you have in God is a father who knows you, loves you, delights in you because of his grace, and is inviting you to walk in obedience to him. Why? Because it's for your flourishing and his glory. Let's pray. Jesus, I know that my own story is riddled with sexual failure. I know that I'm a man who has no business being used by you. And yet, like Judah, you've redeemed me. You've forgiven me. You've restored dignity, worth, and value to me so that I can be used by you, so that I can be healed and forgiven from my sexual brokenness. And God, that is the same grace that you are offering every person in this room. The opportunity to receive grace for sin, to receive healing for the wounds that are tragic in our life. God, would you give us a fresh glimpse of your grace displayed through brokenness? God, would our guilt motivation shift to grace motivation? Would we feel the freedom of our relationship with you? And God, in response to that grace and love, would we begin to walk in integrity, regardless the cost? We, would we begin to be people who honor you as we live according to your design, not motivated by fear and guilt, but motivated by love and grace and freedom? 
Jesus, thank you that you are the Lion of Judah, that you're not afraid of our mess, that it's impossible for us to disqualify ourselves from grace, and God, that you have the power to restore us. Amen.